Okay, let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Black Bibles in the seats around you, Matthew 22 is page 828. We have a few more sections through 22 before we take a break. If you have one of those Bibles with red letters, you'll start noticing that there's a new section where Jesus talks a lot and he gives these long speeches in chapter 23, 24, and 25. But for now, we're going to look at uh, another showdown with Jesus and Jewish religious leaders in the temple. So it's chapter 22, verses 23 to 33. Before I read the text, I want to read you probably the words and lyrics of a song that many of you might have heard before. In summary, I'm going to read this song because I think that this song summarizes a good bit the theology and the view of the Sadducees, who I'll explain a little bit in a minute. This is John Lennon. The song's called Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion, too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. Now you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join me and the world will be as one. You heard that one before? Um, I think there was a point in my life when I heard that song and I was like, man, I love this song. And then I had the moment, I'm like, those are terrible song lyrics. It's a good reminder that sometimes you need to actually listen to what you're playing on the radio or on your Spotify account and say, oh, wait, what am I actually saying here? Imagine. Imagine no heaven, no resurrection. I really think out of the various views that are being represented in Jesus' showdowns, the Sadducees' views on the world and life and theology, they pretty much match up with America. Like it, it, if you study who these people are that we're about to read, and then you think about the people you meet every day, you're going to realize, yeah, that's the world we live in too. So I'd like to read the text and then make two points. And then we'll call it a day. Let's read the text. The same day Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, 
Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Here's your big idea for today's message that I would encourage you to do with your life. Imagine the truth and the power of the resurrection. Did you catch that? John Lennon, imagine. I want you to imagine something. And maybe... Maybe we could imagine a world where all the people weren't just living for today, but had hope beyond the grave. So let's imagine them one at a time. Here's here's the basic structure of the message. First, imagine the truth of the resurrection. Second, imagine the power of the resurrection. And what I want us to do is meditate on the implications of what Jesus says here. The story showdown is between Jesus and Sadducees. So first, who are Sadducees? Sadducees were a priesthood party, uh, a privileged ruling class, wealthy, well-to-do, the aristocracy of the day in the Jewish world. We know from the text and several other times that the Bible tells us they did not believe in the resurrection. But why? Why did they not believe in the resurrection? Because they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. They rejected the rest of the Hebrew scriptures and didn't find them worth reading, living, obeying. So they took the Torah. So if I say Torah at all and you're wondering, what do you mean by that? I mean the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those first five books of the Bible are the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures And the Torah was the central and only revelation of God for the Sadducees. And so you need to realize that if you're on the top of the ruling class in the Jewish society, and you've got a guy coming in town, and he's turning over tables, he's causing a ruckus, do you like that? If you're on top, do you like to stay on top? If you've got a lot of money... If you've got a lot of power and influence in society, then you want to stay right where you're at. And so that is why these Sadducees enter into the scene and discuss with Jesus what they find to be a loophole in this whole resurrection thing. So they ask a question about the resurrection, and you see it here. It's in verse 24, and when you and I read it, we would think, I would never be thinking that question. 
Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And that is a quotation from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25. It's the Levite laws. And you and I might think, that's weird. Sure, in our day it might be, but it's actually extremely gracious. If you're a woman and your husband dies and you have no children, then that means you are a destitute helpless widow. That's just the way the world worked back in the ancient world. So to protect widows, a law was made and said that if there was a younger brother and their older brother had a, 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 the misfortune of dying and, and then his wife was left alone without any children, then uh, he would have to marry her. And uh, we know from reading the book of Ruth that this practice was practiced uh, even though several times in the records of these practices, the, the men often did not go through with it. And so, in fact, when that happened, uh, if you read Deuteronomy 25, this is one of those fun moments when you're reading the Old Testament, and you're like, wow, Bible, <laughs> interesting book, right? Uh, you're supposed to take off your sandal, and then you're supposed to go and uh, shame the person that does not go through with the marriage, and then spit on them. There you go. Just obeying the Bible, you know? So the next time somebody turns you down for a date, pull off your shoe and spit on them and say, Deuteronomy 25, just obeying the Bible. So that's the little background behind this question, is that there's a commandment about protecting widows. And it's, it's a good commandment. Uh, it's different than our world, but we're in their world and we're realizing, okay, that makes sense. And so then these men who don't believe in the other books of the Bible, after Deuteronomy, they stop. And most of the clear Bible passages about the resurrection are going to be found in Daniel, Isaiah, the Psalms, and then a very clear reference um, in Daniel 12, verses 1 through 3 or 4. Uh, so those would be some of your references. Oh, Ezekiel 37 would be another good one, the Valley of Dry Bones. And Ezekiel saying that when the restoring of Israel happens, it's going to be like a resurrection of dead bodies coming to new life. So here's, here's your key texts, and what do you notice about all those texts? Isaiah, Ezekiel, Psalms, Daniel. They're not in the Torah. They're not in the first five books. So if you don't read those other portions, it would make sense why you don't believe in the resurrection. In addition to that, resurrection would have been a politically and socially revolutionary idea. If you're the kind of person that's willing to die knowing that there's life on the other side of that, then you're a little crazy. Maybe. You might do things that ordinary, regular people wouldn't do because they want to preserve and save their life. Um, think in terms of our, our worldview, uh, jihadists. You would think that because they think they're going to receive eternal salvation the moment they die for giving up their life uh, in some sort of act of terrorism, that this is dangerous. That's a dangerous way of thinking. In the same way the Sadducees thought that. So they were opposed to it socially, politically, theologically, and they see a loophole in the Torah. They say, well, if there's resurrection, but we follow these Levite laws, then a woman's going to be raised from the dead, and she's going to have seven husbands, or two, or three, and, and just think today, like, how many people do you know that have had more than one marriage? So, so just, just think about that concept. So in the resurrection, 
How many wives will you have? How many husbands will you have? Will you have your ex-wife and ex-husband and whoever else, or maybe somebody passed away, or you've been divorced? I mean, tons of people in our world today, this is a relevant kind of thought experiment, isn't it? Well, what, what that's, what's that going to look like? So, so that's the issue that they're pressing on, and that's kind of the overarching background. So with that background in mind, uh, let's, let's look at Jesus' response and our, our two points, okay? Jesus' response uh, in verse 29 is, is pretty sharp. It doesn't sound so sh- sharp here in English, but it is. It's pretty sharp. He, he, he could basically kind of insulting them a little bit uh, when he says, you're wrong. Like, that was a dumb question would be another way to translate it. So let's, let's understand why it's a dumb question, and let's first do it by understanding the truth of the resurrection. I want you to imagine the truth of the re- resurrection by the way that Jesus responds, and the second half, or, or the, the two parts, there's you are wrong because you neither know the Scriptures and you do not know the power of God. So first, you, you don't know the Scriptures. The reason that they're off and they're wrong, and this is a stupid question, is because they should know their Bibles better. And so I, I want to just have all of you take a time out right now in the message. And I want you to allow space in your mind and heart as you're receiving this. Do you, do you think you could be wrong? Do you ever think that God might be loving to confront you and tell you to your face, no, you're wrong. I'm going to just be black and white about this. That's not right. Or is your view of God and Jesus so nice and so sweet that he would never say something like this? See, I fear sometimes for us, we might think of Jesus as non-confrontational. And here's the Bible. We're just working through it. I didn't think today, what do I really want to say to get people upset? You're wrong. But I I do think that this text of Scripture should give us a moment to pause and ask, what if I'm as wrong as the Sadducees? Have you ever felt that way? What if your entire worldview is wrong? That would be hard to take. Jesus is having a confrontation with somebody, and he's telling them, you're so off and so wrong. And my hope and prayer is that for most of us in this room, we need more fine-tuning in the areas we're wrong. But maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're here today and you're still trying to figure out what Christianity is all about. And I just want to make it clear and obvious that one aspect of Christianity is God lovingly confronting us in our errors. And that that's, that's good. That's good for you to be told you are headed astray and you need to reconsider your path in life. So Jesus explains that the reason that they are wrong is because, first, um, we know that they're picking and choosing which parts of the Bible to read. They, they only use the first five books of the Bible. 
And I think that this is one of the reasons why I said this is exactly like America, Sadducees. I'm going to just use the Bible, and I'll be like, I don't like that part, but that part I'll keep. Friends, that's wrong. Jesus is going to tell you through me right now, don't do that. Don't pick and choose what parts of the Bible you like. Don't use the Bible. Is it Thomas Jefferson that cut parts out? The well-known Bible where he just cut out all these miracles and things? Do you have a Thomas Jefferson Bible? Where you cut the parts out that you don't like and keep the parts that you do? That's when you become God. That's when you make Jesus into your own image, however you like him. And it really just doesn't work to worship God when ultimately you're doing is worshiping yourself in the mirror. So I think that's their first problem, but that's not even the problem Jesus more specifically addresses. He says they were wrong because they don't even understand the parts of the Bible that they do know. How about that for Jesus to, on the one hand, mercifully and graciously meet them where they're at? Okay. You only want to use the Torah? You only want to use the first five books? I'm game. Let's do this, you know? And he basically says, if you would have read the scriptures better, you would have known that, in fact, there is a resurrection. So at this point, I was thinking, you know, I've read the Bible a lot. This is what I do every day and every week. I know all of you don't read it as much. But if you were to stop and think, what's the one place in the Old Testament that you would go to defend the resurrection? Exodus chapter 3 is not going to be on that list. But it is for Jesus. So learn, sit, be a disciple under your rabbi, teacher, Jesus, and learn how he reads the Old Testament. Jesus quotes from Exodus 3. Hannah read for it for us earlier in the service. The story is the burning bush. And at the burning bush, God reveals himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, when you read that, I still think, really? That's resurrection? That doesn't look like resurrection. But here's Jesus' point. The more you meditate on it, the more you imagine and think through the truth of who God is and resurrection and life, he is telling Moses. So here's the timeline. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph and his family, Moses. Might be helpful to go the other way, whatever, right? So Abraham was first, then Isaac, then Jacob. Moses comes later. If Moses is being told that the burning bush is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at? At this moment as the burning bush is going. Well, they're, physically their bodies are dead. But to say that I am their God now suggests that they're alive. Do you see Jesus' move there? He's saying, Moses heard that the God of the Old Testament is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not was their God back when they were alive, but he currently is their God right now, which only means that they must be alive. And so Jesus is seeing and reading in the scriptures things that they would have never seen. 
So I think before we move on to our second point, I want you to first make sure that you understand that the Bible is really important for our everyday Christian lives. And so in terms of applications for us as a church and for you as an individual, we need to realize that our lives can be all messed up. The compasses of where we're headed, our North Star, if it is not the Word of God, then we are going to be led astray. We are going to be wrong. And so it's extremely important that we don't make the mistake of A, picking and choosing the parts of the Bible that we like, and B, misunderstanding the parts of the Bibles that we do know and like. It's extremely important that every week as we gather, we have faithful, committed preparation given to teaching God's Word so that you know it. And that you don't come in here and think, what was Phil talking about? That had nothing to do with the Bible. That just seemed like he was bored one day and he was trying to figure out what to think about, flipping through TV channels and just told some stories and then, well, that was church. How about the Bible as a central part of church as we gather together? You ever notice in our bulletin? We try and make it kind of explicit. On the left-hand column, we read the Word, we sing the Word, we preach the Word, we pray the Word. It's a little device to show that our church services are centered around the Word of God. How about you? How about your life? Is your individual life reflecting the corporate gathering of the saints here at Embassy? For many decades and centuries, Christians have made practices of either morning prayer and time in the Word or evening prayer, either both or one or the other. Have you disciplined yourself at all to spend time in the Word of God? I think this is one of those like basic skills that all of us need to have some sense of ability to navigate so that you can discern truth and error both in the teaching of this church as we do this collectively and then also in your own individual lives. And I don't want you to have Jesus look you in the face and be like, you were wrong. You know why? Because you didn't understand the Bible. It's our job as a church to equip you in this manner. And so please keep us accountable by learning and reading and studying the Word and the Scriptures. As the elders have been processing and thinking about embassy, one of the things we've been talking about a good bit is that we want to try better in terms of our discipleship efforts to encourage practical training and efforts to encourage us corporately and individually to practice these kind of disciplines. And so I want you to take this as uh, an introduction to that movement that we want to start moving toward. And at least the emphasis amongst our elders and leaders is that a lot of you guys in this room are newer, younger, not been Christians for 20, 30, 40 years. And I just want to say as I'm meeting and getting to know so many of you, I want to make sure that we develop a culture and a church that's committed to practicing and training our lives for godliness. So don't have Jesus ask this question. Have you not read? Like, no, no, I have read. And may it be a goal for us to be a church that prizes and encourages and studies and steeps ourselves in the Word of God. Because it's only from there that we're going to be able to 
imagine the truth of the resurrection. Secondly, and lastly, two points. Uh, Let's imagine not just its truth, let's imagine the power of the resurrection. Jesus says that there are two problems, are that you do not know the Scriptures, nor the power of God. You could say that their problem is a bit of faith and a bit of imagination. That's part of why I picked that word, because they're not understanding how great and how much better resurrection life is. So look at what Jesus says to them. He says, you are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God for, let me explain what I mean by that, in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. Friends, this is a dynamite verse for you to meditate on. We should start this meditation right now. What in the world does Jesus mean? You don't know the power of God because you can't imagine that one day you're going to be like the angels. How's that sound? Imagine you like an angel. Now, immediately you might be thinking, what does that even mean? Well, for most of you it means wings, halos, clouds, and things that aren't in the Bible at all. Uh, like angels having wings. Angels are the word for messengers in both the Hebrew and Greek New Testaments. And there's seraphim, there's these different creatures that are different from what we typically call angels. And those are the only creatures that have wings. But there's no reference to angels having wings. So when I say, imagine you'll be like angels, that's what Jesus says. I'm not saying you're going to fly. Sorry. You may fly, but I'm not saying that's what Jesus is getting at here. It'd be a fun thing to imagine, but it might be more of a fairy tale than reality. I'm wanting you to imagine the power of resurrection, the reality of it. I think by far the greatest source of hope and joy and encouragement I find as a Christian is to meditate regularly on what my future life will look like in the resurrected state. I'm probably obsessed with it. Ask my wife, ask the people that spend enough time with me, and I think I probably have too much conversations about, hey, what do you think it'll be like? And then fill in the blank. But I think it's just a helpful exercise because I want to have my mind set on those things that are awaiting us in the future. So more than likely, sorry if this is a little bit of a letdown, but more than likely, I think that when he says you'll be like angels, all he's really just saying is that you won't be married, which he just said in the other point. So let's clarify what we're imagining. Imagine no marriage. Now, this is not the time for a man or a woman that's married to go, <clears throat> amen, you know. <laughs> that would be the inappropriate time to do that. And if that's in your heart, then again, we need to pray, you know. Imagine no more marriage. Is that a hard pill to swallow? Especially in Christian church cultures where we sometimes idolize marriage and family. I'm, I'm not for saying that we should not prize the institution of marriage and family. By, by no means. 
But you can idolize any good thing. You can take a good thing and do what with it? Make it a God thing. And marriage can become that for a lot of people, especially in the church. This is why Hannah prayed for us. God, let our church be especially good at caring for, including, loving, and not treating as weird singles. Who was the most fulfilled, satisfied, abundant life that ever walked the earth? Can you think of some human being that had life and life to the full and wanted to share that with everyone around him? I can. His name's Jesus. He was never married. At least not in the way you and I think about marriage. So then, what could be better than marriage and marital intimacy that produces babies. Hopefully I don't need to go into biology lesson, but you know what I mean? So that won't be in heaven either? Yeah. Imagine that. Like, let that sink in for a minute. What would it be like to have no marriage? Well, no divorce, no fighting with my spouse, no widows, but that's not what I'm talking about. Imagine something better than marriage. I think that's what Jesus is pointing you to. Marriage is momentary. It's temporary. It's a sign pointing you to the destination. When you arrive at the destination, you don't hold on to the sign. You enjoy the bliss of the arrival. I think when I've told this in the past, when we've talked about symbols and signs. Marriage is a sign. It's a symbol. It's a symbol of something deeper and better in the life to come. So if I'm climbing a mountain and there's a path and there's a sign for how to follow the path or the map, I'm following the map. When I get to my destination at the peak of the mountain, I don't put the map in front of my face and block the amazing, gorgeous view. The map was a means to an end. So is marriage. It's a means to an end when you reach the destination of something glorious and beautiful that will take your breath away. So what could that be? Friendship and another marriage. For in fact, we will not be married in the resurrection because we will be married in the resurrection. We will not be married to one another or our spouses or our exes or the other people we will be married to the one and only marriage that is necessary, the one that all the other marriages are pointing to, the marriage between God and humanity. For in fact, the Bible makes this crystal clear from Old and New Testament that marriage is an institution that's meant to point us to our relationship with God and humans. And the Bible story is that that marriage went through a divorce. It went bad but that God's in the business of restoring and reconciling that marriage to the way he originally intended it to be. So think of Genesis 1 and 2 as like, we're going this way, and then the marriage went the opposite way. Jesus and the gospel is bringing us back on track. And right now, we live in the time of moving back to that destination. We're not there yet. Paul in 1 Corinthians is going to say, in fact, our time right now is like a betrothal or what we would call an engagement. It's, it's coming. 
You've been engaged? You've been around people that are? You know the feeling of counting down the days? You ever been anticipating something? Friend, is that the way it feels like for you to imagine the resurrection? To what extent are you counting down the days and praying regularly, Come, Lord Jesus. I'm just longing for the day when there is every tear wiped away. Are you longing for the day when there will be no more corruption in systems of government or in places of business? Are you longing for the day when there will be no more internal battles and strife of your sin and those condemning thoughts where you're beating yourself up all the time because you look at your life and you're like, I am not doing what I should. I'm not the man or woman that I wish I were. Are you longing for the day when there will be no more jealousy and pride and hypocrisy and church splits and failed leaders? Isn't that a much better thing to imagine than just living for today? Right now, my friends, if you're a Christian, you're engaged to be married to Jesus. And just like in the Old Testament, there's a price to purchase a bride. Again, different system for how they did marriages and family life. But the groom, he'd pay a price to the bride's family. It's, it's backwards, isn't it? It's the other way around. In our day, the wife and the the, the bride's family pays for all the wedding expenses. Oh, it was the other way around. R- read John chapter 2 again sometime when Jesus is turning that water to wine and you'll notice that it's the bridegroom's family that's responsible for all the wine and the festivities because it's the husband, it's the groom that's supposed to pay the price for all the wedding ceremony that lasted a week and for the bride herself. In the story of the Bible, in, in the grand plan of redemption, the price was the blood of Jesus, and God has paid that price by sending his son, Jesus, in the world to rescue the broken marriage that began in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. So friend, are you imagining? Are you in awe Are you meditating and longing for the day of knowing that the price has been paid, the room is being prepared, the wedding day is upon us, and whether it's your last breath in this life or it is when Christ returns, that day is sooner than later. We are just a mere vapor of a life, and before you know it, boom, you're in a helicopter, and two weeks ago, you're dead. Or whatever story you've heard of just the fragile, finite, limited, we think we're invincible, but we're really not. What is that for you that's a good reminder of the sobering reality that death is knocking on its door every day and it's just around the corner? Do you have hope? Do you have a worldview? Do you have an understanding of God in the Bible that is going to help you to get through those days and especially the life to come. So friends, I want us to conclude by just imagining and meditating and thinking about Jesus, the beauty of friendship, 
the joy of being together in in intimate, eternal fellowship and knowing that this is what we have to look for for the rest of our lives. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks now for your word. And we're thankful for it because it points us to the truth. And so help us. Help us to be sanctified right now to your truth. The truth of resurrection hope. Lord, I pray that we would spend more time looking forward to tomorrow or the the day of your return than we would just living for today. I pray, God, that if there's anyone here today that doesn't know the power of resurrection and the great love that you went through to save and rescue them, I pray that today would be a day where they're confronted with their errors. See the truth for what it really is and believe that the God of the Bible is alive. He's the God of the living not of the dead, and there is hope beyond the grave. So we pray, Father, that this reality will lead us, compel us, drive us, and give us life and direction this week. In Jesus' name, amen.